There's one additional uh, announcement that I wanted to make, and that is that two Sundays from now, November 21st, is going to be a very special morning for uh, our church family. I could even say a historic Sunday for our church family, because we're going to be honoring the ministry of Alan Redrup and recognizing him as a pastor emeritus uh, on that Sunday morning. Yes, and for those who don't know, Alan is one of the founding pastors of Covenant Fellowship Church, helped to plant this, this church in 1984. He will no longer be serving officially as a pastor, but the title of pastor emeritus will recognize uh, his unique service to the church over the years and his ongoing influence in our church family. Alan will also, uh, moving forward as he is able, continue to serve uh, the church in, in various pastoral functions. But so on the 21st, we will be uh, recognizing uh, that in that, devoting that service to that. And then we'll also have a short reception with cake uh, after the service to, to mark the moment. So that's November 21st. All right, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our sermon series in the book of 1 Peter, and we've seen throughout chapter 1, uh, the apostle Peter celebrates the riches of the salvation that we have received in Christ. Uh, he begins by praising and blessing the name of God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And goes on to celebrate so many of the riches of the salvation that we have in Christ and then we've seen in the first half of chapter 2 that we as the people of God are a distinct people. We are being built up as living stones. Uh, we are a chosen race and a royal priesthood. And we saw last week that we are sojourners and exiles in this world and are called to be a distinct people. And now we come to this important section of 1 Peter in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Uh, our sermon title is Christians and Government. It should be a good time. Um, this section of 1 Peter contains God's desires for how his people relate to government and how we conduct ourselves as citizens. Uh, I want you to know that we as a pastoral team have a desire for Christians to think biblically about government and civic duties and politics. And I want to emphasize at the outset of this message uh, here this morning, I am not going to say everything that could be said about this topic. Our concern today is the question of what this particular passage in 1 Peter 2 teaches and emphasizes. And what we see is that God calls his people to honor and submit to governing authorities, and that as we do this, it honors the Lord and contributes powerfully to our witness in the world. And so this is 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, let's start reading in, in verse 11 to review the, the prior two verses, even though our focus will be in the section beginning on verse 13. This is God's holy and authoritative word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, 
I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. May God bless the preaching of his word. Peter had not always thought this way about governing authorities. In John 18, the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested in the garden, a group of soldiers and officers of the chief priests were there. And you may remember it was Peter who came with a sword and who drew his sword, swung for the head of Malchus in that moment, the high priest's servant, and took off his ear. Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword. And then John 18 says that it was later that same day, uh, that night in the courtyard of the high priest, that Peter denied Jesus three times in a conversation with a servant girl. Peter knew fighting, and Peter knew fear, and he knew them in the same day. Those remain, I believe, the primary impulses we experience in a hostile world. Whenever Christians are mistreated and marginalized, as in Peter's day and as in our own day increasingly, when society and when government is antagonistic to Christianity, the temptation for Christians, the temptations that we, that we face is to respond either with Godless fighting, which looks like the resisting of authority, going after enemies, using combative speech, often on social media, godless fighting, or we respond with godless fear, where we isolate ourselves from the world. So we have culture warriors, and we have cultural withdrawers. But Peter had learned a better and more beautiful way. He has learned to not draw the sword. He has learned instead to walk in humble submission and respect for all rulers. And it's later in that same chapter in John 18 that Jesus calmly stands before Pilate and says, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, Jesus is saying that his goal is not to establish an earthly kingdom like the Roman Empire. His goal is to create a kingdom of priests and a holy nation who are distinct because they are citizens of heaven. And that's what Peter has been emphasizing in 1 Peter, that we are a holy nation. We are exiles and strangers. This world, friends, this world is not my home. We love our earthly country and we care about its future, but we care far more about faithfully representing our homeland. And so, after exhorting these believers to honorable conduct, Good deeds, verses 11 and 12, the first category that Peter applies this to is honorable conduct in relating to the government and the beautifully good deed that each one of us should look upon with, with, with beauty. The beautifully good deed of submission and honor toward earthly authorities. What Peter says here is a hard word. What Peter says here is shocking. Pontius Pilate was a governor. James was put to death by Herod. It was either Claudius or Nero who was ruling at the time that Peter wrote this. And if you know anything about the, the history of Nero and his reign, he was not a nice guy. He was a cruel Roman leader who led the great persecution against Christians in the first century. In fact, historians say that it was under Nero that Peter was martyred. And so what does Peter say about how Christians are to relate to the godless pagan Roman emperor and every other government leader? Be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake. It is not a popular message, but it's one that we need to hear in all of its force and clarity. What I want to do is spend our time here looking at five unpopular ideas from this passage. All right, I've got, yeah, I've got five of them. First, everyone is called to submission. Everyone is called to submission. You may know that from the time we are born, we naturally resist authority. Children seem to instinctively say no to their parents. Children naturally take up as their anthem, you're not the boss of me. And in many ways, our culture reinforces this negative view of authority and submission. But what does the Bible say about this theme of authority and of submission. Well, this entire section of this letter that we're heading into, Peter is focusing on the important role submission plays in the lives of Christian men and women. And he's applying that to various areas of life with the introductory command that we'll see repeated, be subject to. He applies it to government in verses 13 through 17. He applies it to the servant-master relationship and to all injustices in verses 18 through 21. And then applies it to marriage in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And at the center of it all, this entire section that addresses uh, this theme of submission, at the center of it is the example of the meekness and submissiveness of Christ in verses 21 through 25. 
the most glorious submission the world has ever known is the submission of the sinless Savior in his life and sufferings and death. And it is because he submitted himself to the Father's will. He submitted himself to death in our place that we have life and salvation in him. And he, through his death, has not only secured our salvation, he's given us an example. Everyone is called to submission. Verse 13 says, For the Lord's sake, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. In other words, every level of national, state, and local authority is in view. David Helm in his commentary says, Peter's word here is nothing short of an unabashed emphasis on civil obedience. An obedience that extends even to times when the ruling authorities are ungodly. That is exactly what, what God wants Christians to be known for, an unabashed emphasis on civil obedience. Now, the fact that we are to be subject for the Lord's sake implies that we are not to be subject when God would be dishonored. Peter knew that there is a time to say, as he says in Acts chapter 5, when authorities threatened to imprison him again and commanded that he no longer preach Christ, he said, we must obey God rather than men. If we are going to violate God's law, we must not comply. Uh, if there is injustice and disorder, Christians should not enable or support it. There are biblical examples of God honoring civil disobedience, of protest, of advocacy. And there are other situations where it may be permissible to not comply either because it may violate the rights of citizens or because a law is not enforced. Yes, there is complexity here. Yes, wisdom is needed in certain cases. A concern for the glory of God is needed. And perhaps among with that concern for God's glory most of all, what is needed is an eagerness to submit where possible. That, that eagerness to embrace submission wherever possible is what our text is calling for. Too often we say, prove to me that the government is right on this issue. Prove to me that each law is best and then I will submit. But God says, unless they're asking you to sin or perpetuate unrighteousness, here is the starting point for your mandate. Submit yourself to them. No, it's not always easy, but yes, it is clear. You might have the position, I'm trying to pick an example that's really far removed from anything that's going to touch on anything, <laughs> get myself in trouble. Okay, so, I, so you may have the position, I don't know, seatbelt laws are an overreach of government authority, right? or that car seat laws for kids up to such an old age is lame because their heads are practically hitting the ceiling at that point. And I can't barely fit all the car seats into, you know, the back seat of the car. Or that state inspection laws for vehicles should be different. Or that a particular stop sign is unnecessary. All right? But hear this. Mature Christians will have a disposition and a willingness to submit to ruling authorities. Dan Doriani in his commentary says, if Peter could command the church to submit to Nero, we can certainly submit if our governor takes a stand that we consider erroneous. 
That's the teaching of the text. Everyone is called to submission. One of the things I realized this week as I was studying this passage and reflecting on this theme, I think we tend to have a lot of thoughts on what the government can be doing better and perhaps haven't given as much thought to what we can be doing better in relating to government. The concern of this text falls squarely there, that each one of us would examine our own hearts and lives and consider the claim that God has made upon us. A second unpopular claim of this text, God has a good purpose for imperfect governments. God has a good purpose for imperfect governments. Verse 14 reveals God's purpose for government. Government is not man's idea, it is God's idea. And we're told there that the emperor and governors are responsible to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. There's some overlap here with another uh, crucial text on a biblical understanding of the government, and that is in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. There Paul expounds on Uh, God's good purpose for government, how Christians can live to receive their approval, the reason we pay taxes, the importance of respect and honor. And one of the things that's emphasized clearly there is that government comes from God. That certainly does not mean, as uh, Christians will sometimes say, that God approves of every leader and administration. It does mean that government has a God-given task And that God-given task is to enforce justice and to defend the weak and to punish the guilty. The government in Peter's day and in ours is given by the common grace of God. The God who makes the sun to shine on the just and on the unjust. Government is a gift of God's common grace to establish peace and safety and order and flourishing. No, their authority is not ultimate. God's authority is ultimate. But he has appointed government as imperfect as they may be, as imperfect as the Roman Empire was at the time Peter was writing. God has appointed them as an earthly authority. And I have to say, I was, found myself convicted by God's Spirit this past week that too often when I think about the government, my first impulse is criticism and complaint. That's what I gravitate toward. It is so easy, I find, to be cynical. It is so easy to see weaknesses in politicians and in parties. One of the things that God helped me see this week is the reminder that as Christians, we ought to thank God for the government and for those who serve in government, even if they do so imperfectly. We are able, church, to gather and to share the gospel with others in our nation without any fear of imprisonment or death, and this is because our government has created peaceful conditions for the church to carry out its mission. And that is not a privilege to be taken lightly, but is one we thank God for and desire to preserve. We experience so many blessings in our nation by the common grace of God expressed through our government. God has a good purpose for imperfect governments. Unpopular claim number three. Our character is crucial to our witness. Character is crucial to our witness. According to Peter, this is verse 15, 
an essential part of our witness in relation to government and the public square is our submission and our good works. This matters because, again, when we think, when we think about Christians and government, what, what comes first to mind? I think we tend to approach this topic with a primary concern for gaining power, for changing policies, and for protecting our rights. And there is certainly an important place, even an essential place, to talk about those things, especially in a democratic society. Those things can be a part of our witness. Christians should engage politics as a means of loving our neighbor and seeking the common good. But we need to always remember, we must always remember, that God calls us as Christians to relate to government with a higher goal than gaining power and winning political battles. He calls us to a higher goal. There is a distinction between our witness and our winning, and Christians put witness before the win. Look at the text. What is the value of this submission? Verse 14, it honors God. It is done for the Lord's sake. So submission to the government is pleasing in his sight. That alone is reason enough to instill in our hearts an eagerness to submit. But then also, this submission, we are told, provides an apologetic to a watching world. Peter says, verse 15, for, here is why you must submit, for this is the will of God. This is the design and plan of God for our civic engagement. That by doing so, that by submitting and devoting ourselves to good works, that by doing so, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, now there's a number of assumptions behind this verse. One, the assumption behind verse 15 is that the world is paying careful attention to how Christians engage, operate toward the government and in politics. The world pays careful attention to who we honor, to how we speak, to where our hope is found. What difference does this faith in Christ make in their lives? What does it produce? And this is one of the reasons that I thank God that we have so many church members who do this so well. You model faithful and submissive presence in the world, and it makes a glorious statement to the world and is pleasing in the sight of God. Don't misunderstand what's in view in verse 15 here. The world will always have criticisms of Christians. And verse 15 says it is because of their ignorance and their folly. There are people who think they know what Christians are, but they are ignorant. They do not know. They think Christians are self-righteous. They think Christians are self-serving power-hungry, hypocritical, mean and bigoted. But here's what Peter says, what God says through this text in how this plays out. And this, I think, is what too few Christians understand. And it is this, that the way Christians relate to the government and our submission to them in particular, even and especially when we are mistreated by them, okay, our submission to the government is designed by God to be a primary means 
for how the criticisms of unbelievers toward us are silenced and even how some unbelievers will be won to Christ and brought to glorify God, verse 12. That's the power of the witness of this submission. The best way to silence the ignorance of the world in their misconceptions about Christianity is not our verbal political arguments, but the power of our Christian conduct in how we relate to the government and how we live as citizens. What the world finds is that the slander just doesn't stick because Christians are so obviously good for society. People say, I want to criticize and speak against these Christians, but they are always helping those in need. They're always speaking up for those on the margins. They are so kind to everyone. They are always gracious and respectful. The slander ultimately doesn't stick because they see our conduct is the teaching of the text. Now, no Good works will not always be recognized as good by the world, but the text means nothing if we don't recognize that often our good works are recognized by the world. The world around us, even unbelievers, by the common grace of God, they are able to recognize and value compassion, justice, integrity, kindness, and honor. And this is one of the main reasons Christians should strive to be good citizens even when we are mistreated. I came across this sentence from Mary Wilson that I thought was so helpful, commenting on this passage. She says, God has chosen to reveal his character to oppressors through our good conduct in the midst of oppression. God's revealing his character. How is he doing it? He's revealing it to oppressors. He's revealing it to unbelievers through our good and submissive conduct in the midst of opposition. That is the will of God. It's not a popular message, but our character is crucial to our witness. Fourth point, our freedom is not self-serving. This is verse 16, and at this point, Peter anticipates an objection. There's all this talk about submitting ourselves to pagan rulers. Haven't we been set free in Christ? And it is gloriously true that we have been set free through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have been set free from guilt and condemnation. We have been set free from the curse of the law. We have been set free from the wrath of God that we deserve for our many sins. But our freedom in Christ is not like how we are accustomed to thinking about freedom. This freedom is not the right to govern ourselves, but the right to serve others and to honor God with our lives. And so verse 16 says, live as people who are free, not using your free, don't misuse this freedom in Christ. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. See, uh, uh, America tends to encourage freedom as a means to what? As a means to individuality, as a means to personal rights, as a means to doing your own thing. That is for so many the vision of freedom. But the Bible declares our freedom from self-centeredness and freedom to lay down our lives in submission 
Freedom to honor God and to serve others. Our freedom is not self-serving. And then the fifth and final unpopular claim of this passage that we, each one of us, receive in humility and with an eagerness to examine our own lives is in verse 17. The heading is, everyone should be honored. Everyone should be honored. There are four rapid-fire imperatives in verse 17, all involving our relationships, all of them being the fruit of the gospel in our lives. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So timely, so important, because there is so much political division and contention in our day. You may have noticed that our culture's political engagement is not marked by honor, but by brashness and by loud arguments, by insults and mockery, scoring points, name-calling. That is the, the air we breathe. That is the cultural mode of the moment that is increasingly influenced influencing Christians who ought to think differently, who ought to engage differently. I do not concern easily, but I am concerned that so much of Christian social engagement fails to consider and apply these commands. And this is where each one of us must place ourselves in submission to the Word of God. Each one of us must examine our own lives because this is a place where the Bible is very clear in the realm of our civic duties. The Bible doesn't give us a political platform. The Bible doesn't speak to every political issue. Do you know where the Word of God is crystal clear? These commands. One, honor everyone. Everyone? Everyone. What if they are wrong? Honor them. What if they don't honor us? What if they mistreat us? Honor them. This doesn't mean that we lack courage. We need to speak the truth. We need to speak it without compromise. We need to be willing to take unpopular stands. We need to be willing to say and identify lives, lies and erroneous teaching. We do all of that. But what this means is that as we do so, as we are willing to take unpopular stands... God commands us to always be gracious and respectful, to be warm-hearted and tender, to be abounding in love and hope. We are commanded by God to show honor and respect to all people because all people bear the image of God. This, this honoring of all people is foundational to the biblical mandate for Christian civility. Christian civility, uh, public respect and courtesy, even in the face of opposition and in the face of mistreatment. Incivility is grounded in dehumanization, which is part of why you see so much of it on social media where people are not face-to-face -face and conduct themselves in ways that would be unimaginable for face-to-face -face interaction. Incivility is so deadly and so dangerous because it fails to recognize human dignity. Honor everyone. Honor means that Christians care about the content and the tone of our words. 
Like in parenting, every good parent does not tolerate the wrong, dishonoring tone from their children. We are called to honor everyone. The next command is beautiful. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. This goes beyond the general command to honor and reminds us that here in the family of God, among our brothers and sisters, there is a special affection that we have for the family of God. We are not first and foremost political constituents. We are brothers and sisters in the household of God. And our union in Christ and our union with each other is exponentially more important than our political party. Let's show the world something different. Where there are Christians who disagree with you on politics, love the brotherhood. Where there are Christians who are difficult to love, where there are Christians who have sinned against you, love the brotherhood. And it is as we embrace this call to press deeper into loving one another that the world will come to know that Christ is who he says he is. This is the witness of the love of the brotherhood in a lost and dying world. Third, fear. I've got like a sermon within a sermon here. We're moving. Third command of the four commands in verse 17, fear God. The fear of the Lord. We do not fear man. What can man do to me? What can the emperor or president or a governor do to me? There is only one we fear, one who receives our ultimate allegiance and obedience, and it is God alone. And to fear God means that our trust and our security is in Him alone. Our trust is not in our circumstances. Our security is not in any human leader. We fear God. And part of what that means is that we are willing to do what is right, however unpopular it may be. We are willing to say we must obey God rather than man. Fear God and then honor the emperor, which cuts against everything in our culture regarding how we relate to authority. And you know that. You know there is so much. In our culture, it is a world marked by disdain for authority, by harsh criticism and mockery of authorities. I was, th- I was thinking again this week, it is, it is easy to criticize government. And there is a legitimate place for criticism. But pointing out the faults of a president or a governor or any other leader is just not especially difficult. It's not especially challenging. Anyone can do that. The unbelievers can do that. Do you know what is difficult? Do you know where the distinctness of our witness lies? Right here, honor them. Submit to them. Pray for them. This is the call of God to us. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And I couldn't help but to get the impression that it is the kindness of God that he has us in First Peter, and it's the kindness of God that he has brought us in this series to this passage, because here, God is calling us as a church family to something. He's calling us to something unpopular. He's calling us to something extraordinary. He's calling us to something glorious. This passage, these verses 
are the call of God to the marginalized and mistreated church in the midst of a hostile world. This is what God calls us to. Now and increasingly in the days to come, this text must be our guide. When we are mistreated, we will not hit back. When we are reviled, we will not attack in return. When we are persecuted, we will not panic. Why? Because we've been taught by God in 1 Peter. We know that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. We've been taught by the Spirit that our identity in Christ needs to profoundly shape our calling as citizens. We refuse to join in the sinful fighting or the sinful fleeing. We have resolved that we will engage and relate to government and politics in a way that adorns the gospel we proclaim. And do you know what? What an incredible opportunity we have. What a glorious opportunity for us as a church to be distinct. You must know where does the distinctness of the church in this culture, in this age lie? Right here. Because in a world of contention and division, we get to display the peace of Christ. And in a world of disrespect and rudeness, we get to display the kindness and the love of Christ. And in a world of despair and unrest, we are called by God and have been displaying and will go on displaying the hope of Christ for all to see. Church family, you are doing well. Let's continue to press on to be the kind of sojourners and exiles that God has called us to be for the glory of his name alone. Amen.